Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started here. Glad to see you all made it today, survived the wind. Uh, your vicar from Florida is not used to that kind of wind unless it's a hurricane, so. <laughs> Last time, uh, we talked about why the pastor shouldn't preach a 16-hour sermon that goes till midnight, because the young man might fall out the window. And... Paul is moving on from where he has been, and he is on his way now to Jerusalem so that he can attend the the Feast of Pentecost. Now, we left off on the back of session 35, but that little back section that we're going over today is right here at the top of 35. So let's begin reading at Acts chapter 20, verses 13 through 16. And we can start over here. Okay, she's going to pass. Okay, so perfect. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, Asos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. And when he met us at Bastos, we took him on board, and he went to The next day we set sail from there and arrived at Old Chaos. The day after, we crossed over to Samos, and on the following day, we arrived at Milos. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. Okay, so Paul is on the move once more. And where is he going? What's his target? Jerusalem Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. Now, it says here that Paul wants to walk while the rest of everybody who normally would travel with him would hop on a boat. Do we remember why that's the case previously? They wanted to kill him. Right, there was a plot to kill him, and so he was on foot. Now this time, it doesn't really say why exactly he was going to travel on foot. Um, But we do know that that was his plan. Maybe those same threats were still uh, very active, and he was not going to hop on a boat where they were planning to throw him overboard or kill him. We talked last time about the, uh, we know that there are contemporary examples of people being assassinated or killed on boats. We talked about that last time, Pastor Moline did. Uh, Maybe as he's traveling on foot, it allows him to stay in one place for longer. Perhaps he wanted to stay with the, the good folks of Troas. But they all get aboard the ship at Asos, and they're headed towards, ultimately, Jerusalem. Now, Paul deliberately does not stop in the city of Ephesus. Why? He had been there before. He knows these people. He was their pastor for a good long time. Why would he not stop there, in the city? 
He's got to, he's, he has to make tracks. He, he can't dwell there too long. He has a goal. He has a place he needs to be. He's on a schedule. But, and let's see where, let's go ahead and read 17 all the way through 35. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Okay, so there's a lot in there, but I think first what we should point out is Paul is going to Jerusalem, and what does he say about Jerusalem here in this section? I'm looking at verse 22 and 23. He says he's going to Jerusalem, but... He doesn't know what will happen to him there. 
What's he talking about? I thought he was just going there for the feast. Right, he, he has a sinking suspicion that his enemies that he has made on his missionary journeys will catch up to him in the city of Jerusalem. Well, why, why is he going? Why doesn't he run away? What's his goal? What is his ultimate goal in the end? Preach the word. Ultimately, who is he looking to preach to? The Jews, the Gentiles, perhaps even the emperor himself. As a Roman citizen, he has the right to appeal to Caesar and can have an audience with Caesar. Think the court system is a little different than we're used to, right? Here we have um, judges, different levels of judges and courts and systems. And if you wanted to have your case heard in the Supreme Court, you'd have to go through a lot of steps first. You have to have the local litigation and then the regional litigation. And those rulings have to be appealed, and it has to go through the appeal system, and then you have to appeal to the Supreme Court. And that's not the way that it worked then. The, the whole system was based upon the emperor on behalf of the Senate of the people, appointed governors, and they appointed people who were below them. And so when Paul is going to go in the court system, He's going to start with the governors, and they're going to be hearing his word. And so for him, it's not that he's planning on getting arrested. He's not seeking to get arrested. He's sure, has a good idea that he's going to be, and that's okay, because now he's going to get to preach the word to these people, the governors. The, we're going to see it in the rest of the book. Sorry, I'm stuck on your toes here. <laughs> We're going to see it. He's going to preach to Felix. He's going to preach to Festus. Uh, and he's going to preach to um, one of the Herods that's uh, still around. And we're going to leave him in Rome, where tradition says he preached to Nero. And so by being in this court system, these opportunities for preaching the word arise. And so he knows that God will work through it, for that to happen. Does he want to get arrested necessarily? No. No, right? But he knows that however it will happen, God will allow him to preach it. Sorry for interrupting. Thank you, Pastor. Since I put together the outlines, I usually know what I mean. <laughs> usually. So what does it mean, constrained by the Spirit? What's that? I mean, I understand why he's, you know, got some uh, anxiety about going to Jerusalem, but my reading there, my reading's something wrong there. The, the Spirit isn't constraining him, or is just kind of warning him? Constrained by the Spirit. Uh, that was my question. My, my translation says the Holy Spirit testifies to me about imprisonment and afflictions. Uh -huh. 
Pastor, do you have a good answer for that? Yeah, I think it's a good confession of how the church works. So, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen, except that the Spirit testifies to me in every city that what's ahead? Imprisonment and afflictions. And so, maybe this is the way to say it. Does a pastor appoint himself? No. What's the reason that I'm here? You called me. You called me, or who called me? God called me through your this congregation to come here and be the pastor. The Holy Spirit has constrained me in that sense. I can preach here, but if I go over to Messiah, I can't preach. Or Christ, or faith, or Emmanuel, or Redeemer, unless I'm invited. The Spirit's at work, hopefully, as He promises to be in the Word that I preach. And if I'm being faithful, to say it that way, the Spirit is working through me and leading me so that what can happen? What's the important thing about having a pastor? What's he do? Preaches the word, and the Holy Spirit works faith in the church through that. So if constrained by the Spirit means Paul is confessing who is doing this. Who's, who's moving him around? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Now, um, <clears throat> I have to have here. Constraint is an unusual word. You don't use it very often, just in part of the So the definition might be of interest. <clears throat> means one age of force by imposed stricture, restriction, or limitation. To restrict the motion of, to a particular mode, to force or produce in an unnatural or strained manner, to secure by, or as if by, bonds, to bring into narrow compass, to clasp tightly, to hold back as if by force. So, could we say then that Paul really can't run away, that he shouldn't run away, that even if there is this threat of arrest and imprisonment and torture, he, he cannot run away. He, he is duty-bound by the Holy Spirit. He has been called to be a pastor, and if he were to run away, he would be sinning. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and that's the word, the Greek is deo, uh, uh, delta, epsilon, omega, which, I hope you know that one bigger, it'd be like if I... Tied you up. That's Deo. Uh, and so constrained means he's tied, he's bound to it. He has to do it because who's leading him around? If, if I take Clark and I put handcuffs on him and uh, tie him around the neck with a rope, he pretty much can't go wherever I take him or I drag him, right? Better you than me, Clark. <laughs> so that's that's the 
not constrained by stopping him from doing something, it is binding him to this task. Any other questions about that? Okay. So we have here a farewell address from Paul to the elders of the church of Ephesus. And the point that we want to make here today is that this isn't just a regular sort of farewell address like a president might give or a politician or someone else. But this is actually a sermon. Now, it's going to be a little different in content than the sermons that we've looked at in the past. But in many ways, it's also very similar. And we'll take a closer look at that as as we move on. So St. Paul calls for the elders to come out to him. He cannot be there too long in Ephesus. He has places to be. And he calls for the elders. Now, who is he calling for in the elders? Is he calling for the the board of elders from Good Shepherd Lutheran in Ephesus? Who who are these elder guys? Pastors. Pastors, that's right. The Greek word we have here is presbyteros, which is... Pastors. It's translated as elders, but these are men who have gone through the ordinary way that men become pastors, educated, examined, called, and ordained. Holy Scriptures refer to pastors with several different words, but this one, elders, is one of them, and it's speaking about pastors as we would understand it today. Does that mean that we're wrong when we have a board of elders? No. It's it's just the word that we use for the board of elders. Men in the church who are uh, educated and able to look after the pastor, help the pastor, assist the pastor in, in in a proper way. I don't know that our church polity, and that's just the way, the, the way that the church is structured, would have it. Um, the, the board of elders, um, certainly we look to our elders with respect and we listen to them, but it's not as if you have a, your pastor is the general and then his elders are his captains or lieutenants and they give orders. It's not quite like that. Um, Pastor, is it, it depends on every individual congregation because there's no actual requirement to have an office of elders um, or anything like that. So it's set up a little differently in every congregation. But essentially, it is the group of men in the congregation we're there to assist making sure that the worship of the church is taking place the right way. And so they assist the pastor in that. They help plan with the pastor in those things. They help with lots of things in our congregation. Um, 
but it's they're not pastors, but they're there to assist the pastor in his tasks. So they're elected as a membership. Well, and that depends on where you are as well. In in some churches, I've heard that they are elected. In others. Uh, the existing board of elders can assist the pastor in picking new elders in churches that are just being planted, some sort of other committee or the pastor working with some other group of people picks a group of elders, men that are trusted and respectable and that are knowledgeable and that are able to help the pastor in that way. So it, it all depends on where you're at. There's a lot of Christian freedom here. In I know a congregation that all the men Here we do elect them for a three-year term. We have to have, according to our constitution, at least three. We have currently nine, and there's no constraint on the upper end of things. Um, but we, we do elect them at the annual voters meeting. Sorry for interrupting again. It's, it's all good. I've never heard of that one. <laughs> so Paul calls out for the the pastors of the region of Ephesus and in the city to come out to him and he's going to tell them some very important things. He's going to preach a sermon to them. So we're going to look specifically for both law and gospel in the sermon that he delivers to these pastors. And I think this is also important to point out. Is it okay to preach a sermon to only a specific group of people. Yeah, it, it's just fine. This happens at seminary, uh, particularly on call night. There will be a pastor there, and he delivers a message for the men that are going out to become pastors in Christ's church. I don't know that... It still has law and gospel and preaches Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. But if I preach the same sermon in the nursing home like I do on Sunday afternoons, it would be a little strange because the, the lovely people there aren't going out to be pastors. So it's important, and this is something that they teach you at seminary, when you are a pastor in a place, you need to know your flock. You need to know which things uh, bother them, afflict them, how to encourage them specifically. And that means that you need to be in their homes. You need to know your flock. You're not just some sort of hireling that does not care and delivers generic sermons that don't properly apply God's law and gospel to the people. And now, where I'm from in Florida, we have a lot of Baptists. And one way that they get into trouble is frequently their sermons follow the exact same format all the time with very little variation. You have the fall into sin with Adam and Eve, you have Jesus, then you have the altar call. Just like that, every single time, this exact pattern. You get the same sermon a thousand times. Can God work through that sermon? 
Yes, he can. Um, Unfortunately, there's a lot of decision theology and bad stuff that goes along with it, but God can work through that sermon. Is it the best? No. Often, law and gospel are not rightly uh, discerned, and frequently, um, the application is lacking. It's very generic. It's bland. The goal in a lot of these cases is not, and see, this is, this is a difference in approach. I've heard it said that for these churches that have the altar call, when you're in the church, they'll tell you the gospel really isn't for you anymore. I mean, you're already in. You've been saved Yeah, you can come to church and you can hear the sermon, but it's not really for you anymore. It's for the people outside the church. That's completely wrong because God's word creates and sustains faith. The gospel is always for you, whether you're outside of the church or inside of the church. But not everybody looks at it that way. So... That's all to say that, yes, you can have sermons that are delivered to just the elders of Ephesus. It's perfectly fine. All right, specific law that we see in this sermon. Shout anything out if you see it. Uh, Let's see. Well, in verse 21, I see testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's describing what he's done previously in his preaching wherever he's been, preaching repentance. That's the law. And also about Jesus Christ, which is the gospel. In verse 24, Paul says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. That's kind of a law statement. But it's true. Verse 28. This one is... Specifically directed towards those pastors that are there listening to this sermon. Pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Now when we look at Holy Scripture and sermons and we're discerning law and gospel... Uh, there is often a temptation to just have two categories. It's either law or gospel. And there are some that would teach that you could take the Word of God and you could have a, a green highlighter and a red highlighter. And you could highlight all the gospel as green and all the law as red. 
Now I've lost my place. <laughs> but that's okay. And that is rightly dividing law and gospel. That is not exactly correct because here in this, right here, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. That's a command. That's law. Paul is saying to the elders there, don't neglect your duties. But for us, who are the sheep, this is good news. This means that when our pastors read this, we know that our pastors are not neglecting their duties. That they are here to care for the flock, as it says here. That's good news. That's good news to have pastors that pay careful attention and look out for the flock, who are our overseers. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. Whose blood? Jesus. Jesus. Christ crucified. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Law or gospel? That's law. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Law or gospel? That's law too. In a moment we'll look more closely at some of these ones, but right now we're just picking out law and gospel. Therefore, be alert, verse 31, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. The command for the pastors there to be alert, that's law, that's a command. Verse 32, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. That's good news. That's gospel. Paul discusses there in verses 33 and 34, and well, and through 35, all of the things that he has done as he's traveled around, and specifically here in Ephesus. I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This is one of those where it could be either law or gospel. I mean, it's a law. We must help the weak. But for the weak, that's gospel. There are those that will help them, the pastors that have been called to care for and watch over the flock. This is good news. So we have in this sermon, law and gospel, we've looked a little bit at that. Is he preaching on any particular text? I think so. <clears throat> Let's have two volunteers look up Ezekiel 33 verse 8. 
and Jeremiah 26.2. I need two volunteers. Ezekiel talk about that one for a moment. Where in this sermon could he be referencing this passage? It's in there. talking about innocent of the blood. What about Jeremiah 26, verse 2? Okay. And that also ties in to verse 27 of Acts chapter 20. That there was no shrinking away from declaring the whole counsel of God. So, we have law and gospel. We have scriptural basis. What about the content? In our sermons, we like to talk about a certain person, about Jesus. Does Paul talk about Jesus here in this sermon? Yes. Yes. Particularly with the blood which he obtained with his own blood. Right? That's another place where he's quoting scripture. Now, a point here on our outline with regard to the content of sermons is that pastors should not shrink away from the whole counsel of God. In the case of my Baptist friends back home, who seem to like to just preach the law and sin and hellfire and brimstone, and then Jesus at the end in an altar call, that's not often the whole counsel of God. On the flip side, there are some pastors in some churches that like to preach just the gospel. Jesus forgives all your sins, now go do whatever you want. 
that also is false and incorrect. Pastors are supposed to preach the whole counsel of God, both law and gospel, not just things that they think are important or their own particular hobby horses, uh, not just things that are easy, but the things that they're supposed to preach, the whole counsel of God. Now, what do we have in our church that sort of helps the pastor to do this or makes sure that the pastor is doing this? The liturgy? Yes. But within the liturgy, the lectionary, the lectionary. Here at Good Shepherd, we have the one-year lectionary, so we have a, a list of readings for the whole church year that's repeated every year. And this, pastors are taught, and this has historically been the case, that you preach on the lectionary, the words of God that are being read in the assembly that day. It's not like that everywhere. Some pastors and churches deviate from the lectionary or just pick whatever verses that they want to preach on. And, and that is what they do. They don't follow any particular lectionary. They might even purchase canned sermons that are from some website somewhere that other pastors have wrote and that they can just deliver, putting very little effort into it. That's not quite the whole counsel of God. When a pastor is bound to something like the lectionary, there are some difficult things to preach on, important things to preach on. If the pastor has the freedom to just do whatever he wants and preach whatever he wants, he's not going to preach on the difficult things. That's just not the way it works. But it's good that we have a lectionary and that our pastors do preach on even the difficult texts that have difficult words for us to hear. But they, they still have some flexibility as to which of the readings they want. Sure, right. There's the gospel, the epistle, the Old Testament. Um, and the pastor is free to preach on any, any one of those. Any other questions about that? The lectionary or the whole council? That keeps you from having to make those decisions. Well, that's true. In a very real way, it, yeah. we don't have to worry about what am I going to preach on. It's, yeah, because that would take up extra time if you had to go back and figure out which was proper for... It's been happening for centuries mm -hmm. that all pastors in every place preach on this text on this Sunday. It's a very good thing to have. Pay attention to the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. I'm looking on the back here, the first letter B, towards the top. Let's look up Acts 1, verse 8, Acts 2, verse 4, 
in Acts 4, verse 8. All right, I'll go ahead and read these. Acts 1, verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So here we have the Holy Spirit making the disciples overseers. The Spirit is the one who's doing it. God himself call, God Himself makes pastors. And then Acts chapter 2, verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Again, we have the Holy Spirit causing these things. Acts 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means, by what means this man has been healed? Again, filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter and Paul and the other pastors, the elders of Ephesus, they didn't just volunteer one day and say, you know what, I think I want to be a pastor. And then went and started a church. That's not how it happens. The Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, is involved in this process. So do you think that planting churches is a good thing? Oh, absolutely. You know, other denominations, they pick a town and a whatever, and they make up their mind to plant a church, and they think that's okay. Our church does that as well. The LCMS does. But we don't just go and find a guy, a random guy in another town, and ordain him and tell him, all right, now start a church here. We take a pastor in our church body, that has been called and ordained, examined and educated, and he is sent by the church to a town in order to start up a new church, a church plant. And there's different ways of doing it. Um, in my own experience, I've seen it where there is a sister church, so the or a daughter church. Uh, the mother church takes, calls another pastor takes some of the members to go to this church plant and so they're not just starting with nobody there. There might be a dozen people there on a Sunday. There are different strategies for church planting but it's never just let's go find a guy in this town, we'll just pick him and he can be our pastor there without educating, examining, calling, ordaining. Those things all happen. Now, in cases of other church bodies, they might not always have the same criteria for what makes a pastor as our church body does. Again, with the Baptists, I know I've picked a lot on the Baptists today, but 
it's, um, it's the case that if their preacher leaves, they just pick another man from the congregation, and now he is the preacher man. He didn't go to seminary. He's not ordained, but he is acting as their pastor. That's incorrect, but that's what we do see in other church bodies. But I'm, I'm thinking probably, and I may be wrong, but we have to go through the synod to get permission. Do we have to have permission to start a church somewhere? Pastor? Um, permission isn't quite the right word. <laughs> um, you don't have to have permission. At the same time, we are in a church body. We're not an island unto ourselves. And so it's always nice to communicate with the congregations. So say we want to start a church plant. That's the question, right? Uh, yeah, want, I, I thought you probably would have to go through the, yeah. what do you call it, the council or whatever, some kind of council. We technically could send the pastor or the vicar out every Sunday to a location and have church and hold it there. We could do that. Independence all by ourselves. That's acceptable. At the same time, it would be good for us to communicate with the other churches in our area, right? So that we don't um, start a church right next door to another congregation. <laughs> uh, or it would be good for us to communicate with the district. And maybe they have some things that can help us with it. Maybe they have some money to help us rent the space or things like that. And so that's really the purpose of the Synod, is for us to work together on some of these things, as well as to maintain doctrinal uniformity, as well as to train up pastors. So while we don't have to, it's always good to. Does that make sense? And that's where, I can't remember the word that you used in the question, uh, is necessary or? No, I just did. Permission isn't quite the right word because that implies that the synod itself holds the authority. They don't. They're we we have it's it's a weird thing in our church body. We operate independently, but we're still a part of this larger organization. It's a two-way street. So we don't need permission, but we would like to communicate and work within the system. I think that's the way to say it. Does that make sense, Lynn? Well, yeah, because what I'm thinking is they, the synod, or the, the larger body up above us, they, they have more overall information. And right. they don't, I mean, like, if we would decide we want to plant a church somewhere, don't you think, first of all, we want to make sure there's a need for that church? Right. And I would think the Senate would help help with that because they would they would have the big picture of where the needs are. They would help with it if, if we asked. Um, I'm going to tell you the truth about the Missouri Senate, though. 
Should I stop the recording? <laughs> I, I don't think it's bad for us to know the truth. Most new congregations that start right now, what's the reason that they start? There's been just you know, another congregation. Yes. There's a group of people who are mad in another congregation. And they leave and they say, if you aren't going to do what we want, we're going to do what we want. And lots of times in those situations, they don't go through the system, or they don't. And is that the right motivation? No. What's, if we do start a new congregation, what's the motivation that should a be behind it? A need, and the people wanting to have it. A, a need? I'd say even more, we want more people to go to heaven. That's a really simple way of saying it. We can talk about the nuances of what that means. So we see a need that in this Lincoln's growing south, maybe we need a, a church that direction so that people in the south end of Lincoln can still go to heaven. Okay. I can remember when Good Shepherd started, we were members over Christ, and they were planting this church, and I think you were probably involved in that. No? no? Not that anyway, Pastor Reimitz was the pastor of Good Christ, and he would always say, in retrospect, I should have gone there at the new place to preach because none of us wanted to leave Pastor Reinitz. And so nobody would come. I think it was a very hard struggle for Good Shepherd to get started. Also, more recently, we tried to plant a church in England. Yeah. And I don't know how that starts. I, I don't know how it is not easy ever. Luckily, we don't have riots and things like Paul. Yeah. But it's not easy, and that's why it is good to work with the, the church if we are able to, um, at least to be communicative with them. But, like I said, most churches that start today are because of coffee. And we tried. We tried, we tried at Hickman. It, it didn't go then. Maybe now is the time when it would, because what did they just build south of us? They just built the beltway. And you can't tell me Lincoln and Hickman are not soon going to be, you know what I mean? So if, if it was now, maybe it would succeed. And that's the thing. Who's in charge? God, the Holy Spirit. And we can't just say this is how it's going to be. God is to use the word we use next, constraining uh, the way the church is operating. He's operating through the work of the Holy Spirit and the Word, and He's the Lord of the church, and He raises up congregations, and He shrinks down congregations, and He raises up pastors, and He kills them off. He's the Lord of the church, and all we can do is preach the Word and do the best we can knowing he's going to do what he sees as fit. The motivation for Hickman was outreach. We had a perceived need for preserved exposure in that part of the state. And so that was our motivation. We didn't have conflict. We didn't have issues in that respect. We had members Aren't there a lot of churches in rural areas that have to share a pastor also? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. So 
Yeah, that would be population too. Plant a church somewhere. A lot of times, though, the situation with that is that neither congregation is large enough to sustain itself, and so they can share a pastor and make it work that way. I know that one that's that. The ancient Jews had a rule before they opened the synagogue. You know what the rule was? You had to have 10 families to open a synagogue. Do you know why? Everybody gave 10%. That'd be enough for supporting the finances of the pastor. The rabbi, sorry. You might metaphors mixed here. And that's a little more, it's not the same way today, but that's the smaller congregations have struggles supporting all the things going on. And so they do form groups so that they have more to draw from to support that pastor. Yeah, and that, the church that I came from in Nebraska City, we have a dual parish. Uh, and that one... The, the other church, we would we would have our Bible study there every other week and would have different things we chose from, but we ended up supporting that church. There were like six people in that church, and they couldn't afford to support that church, and it was really, the building was really going down. And I thought it was for judgment. In my, that was me. I was being judgmental, but I thought that was it's a tough thing. It's a tough thing. I think in the next 30 years, a lot of those things are going to sort themselves out. You know, over half the pastors in the Missouri Synod are over the age of 50. Um, and the same way, over half the members of the Missouri Synod are over the age of 50. So there's going to be a lot of changes in the next century of the church. That's just, that's the way the church goes. Back and forth, up and down, all the time. Yeah, sorry. So does that mean the younger people are now going to the more contemporary, less rigid? Or it's the birth rate? No, it's not. What it means is the younger people aren't going at all.
um, on outreach and what that means. And um, we just have to know about it and be ready for it and be prepared. If the Holy Spirit is the one who creates the church, and if he does it through the word and the sacraments, what does that mean for us going into a time where across the board, not just Missouri Synod, Missouri Synod's shrinking less than others because we have a lot of adult converts, uh, like me, not like them. Um, yeah, okay, yeah, maybe we should raise your hand. <laughs> Made sense to me. And then we saw where Peter preached and 
people said, I don't know about this, and left. <laughs> Peter's preached the truth the whole time through. And that's what I can tell you as, uh, as my, for myself, and I think I can speak on Pastor Calvin's path. That's what we'll try to keep doing as well. Preaching the word, administering the sacraments. And then leave the rest of it to God. Well, don't they pray here in the last part of this? He knelt down and prayed with, with all of them to, to encourage them to stay strong in the Word. So, mm -hmm. you know, prayer is a big part of it, too. Right? And I, I think what I'd say is prayer is not a means of grace, but prayer is what Christians do. Like, um, I'm married, so I talk to my wife. <laughs> if I don't talk to her, it, it goes badly. <laughs> I, I talk to my wife because I love her, because we have a relationship, because there's stuff we need to talk about. Um, that doesn't, it's not, the, it's not the relationship in itself, it's the fruit of having a relationship. I don't know if that makes sense. Same with God. God gives us the word and the Holy Spirit to become Christians, and so now we want to talk to him. And we should pray then, right? It's on here eventually, I guess we'll get there next week. Yes. <laughs> um, we pray that the word may work among us, that the Holy Spirit would call us to faith. That it would be really great if we had 800 more members, right? We, we, it's good to talk about these things with God, but we then also need to turn back and look at how God does that. He means the grace of the word. Right, I'll stop talking. Okay. I think we're at time. So let's go ahead and close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those.